Thank you for downloading this podcast from Emmanuel Church Lurgan. At Emmanuel, our vision is to help rewrite the story of Craigavon, Ireland and the nations with the good news of the Kingdom of God. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. Thanks, Phil. Um, It's good to be back with um, work and holidays. I've been away a little bit, but I was saying at the first service, I feel a little like uh, the fall guy here because the last time I preached, it it was because no one wanted to handle the sensitive subject in the Song of Solomon. And, and, And after last Sunday night, I think no one wanted to follow the legend that is Mark Knox. So I can only try this morning. People sometimes ask me why I do the job I do, and the answer is quite simple. I'm rubbish at maths, but I'm fascinated by English. I have a twin brother, and the only time we swapped class in school was when I had maths and he had English. He took my maths class and I took his English. You see, I'm one of those incredibly annoying people who correct their children when they say things like, have went instead of have gone, or I done instead of I did, or I have done. Uh, When we were on holiday last year, uh, the children bought me a book entitled, I Judge You When You Use Poor Grammar. (laughs) Well, Well, I don't really. Well, maybe a little bit, but we all have our idiosyncrasies. And I mean, Julie Timlin's just as weird about this as I am in getting this right. Um, but that tells you the kind of book I read when I'm on holiday. I don't read history or politics or theology. I read stupid books like Essential Norn Irish, <laughs> Your Man's A to Z Guide to Everyday Banter. It's a Northern Ireland dictionary of sorts, giving you a definition for words like Scott, as in Scott, nothing to do with you. (laughs) Meaning this does not affect you in any way. Or lack a device for securing the door. Or as in, I don't know lack. Meaning I have no answer to your question. (laughs) Uh, People don't always say what they mean or mean what they say. For a very long time, there was a sign on the window of a jeweler's in Dundalk that read, ears pierced while you wait. Yeah, think about it, as opposed to leaving them behind for collection later. (laughs) But there's nothing more entertaining than when people attempt to translate from their language into English uh, for signage. Here are just a few examples from around the world. Please do not empty your dog here. (laughs) Not sure that's what they meant. Shoplifters will be prostituted. (laughs) That's definitely a bit extreme. (laughs) And what about this for the description of a meal in a menu in Asia? It explodes the large intestine. (laughs) What's for dessert? Imodium. Sometimes we'd be better not using words. Sometimes they're not required at all. And in the 11th chapter of Mark's gospel, Jesus preaches a powerful sermon without speaking a single word to thousands upon thousands of people who mob him on his arrival in Jerusalem. You will have heard this event described as the triumphal entry, but I'm not sure that's the best description of it. 
Because the people missed their opportunity for triumph, their opportunity for breakthrough, for victory in their own lives that day. Let's just take a moment and read it together. Mark 11, verses 1 to 11. And if you've got your little black book, it's page 36. Jesus and his disciples reached Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives. When they were getting close to Jerusalem, Jesus sent two of them on ahead. He told them, go into the next village. As soon as you enter it, you will find a young donkey that has never been ridden. Untie the donkey and bring it here. If anyone asks what, why you are doing that, say, the Lord needs it and will soon bring it back. The disciples left and found the donkey tied near a door that faced the street. While they were untying it, some of the people standing there asked, why are you untying the donkey? They told them what Jesus had said and the people let them take it. The disciples led the donkey to Jesus. They put some of their clothes on its back and Jesus got on. Many people spread clothes on the road while others went to cut branches from the fields. In front of Jesus and behind him, people went along shouting, Hurrah, God bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. God bless the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hurrah for God in heaven above. After Jesus had gone to Jerusalem, he went into the temple and looked around at everything. But since it was already late in the day, he went back to Bethany with the 12 disciples. If you are here regularly, you'll know we've been exploring Mark's gospel together. Uh, Phil's going to bring that series to a close tonight, as he said. But for any visitors with us, let me do a really quick recap. The book itself doesn't cite Mark as the author. That's the unanimous conclusion of the early church fathers. Mark was a kind of spiritual son of Peter. I imagine the relationship between them was a bit like the relationship between Phil and Dave. Uh, Mark's thought to be the John Mark we read about in Acts 12. His mother was a very um, influential Christian. The Jerusalem church met in her home. And Mark joined Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but not on their second because of a disagreement between them. But this is interesting. Towards the end of Paul's life, he sends for Mark. You see, few people hold grudges on their deathbed. Matthew wrote his gospel for the Jews, but Mark wrote his for the Gentiles. So the book we've been looking at together is less about Jesus' words and much more about his actions. Now we're going to do some maths, so bear with me because you've heard how rubbish I am at maths. Two-fifths of Matthew's gospel is devoted to the final week of Jesus' life. Three-fifths of Mark's gospel is devoted to the final week of Jesus' life. One third of Luke's gospel is devoted to the final week of Jesus' life. And John devotes about half, 50% of his gospel to the final week of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each place enormous emphasis on what we call Holy Week just before Easter. In their four gospels, there's a combined total of 89 chapters. Just four of them covered the first 30 years of Jesus' life. 85 of their chapters cover the last three and a half years of Jesus' life. And 29 of those chapters deal with just the final week. It's remarkable, really. This event, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, is one of only 10 events 
that are recorded in all four Gospels. So that tells you how important it is. It's a rather strange journey. And when he reaches the city, Jesus really preaches this three-point sermon without using any words. Firstly, we learn that Jesus is more appealing than religion. Jesus is more appealing than religion. Mark says there were many people there in in verse 8. John describes it as a large crowd and actually tells us what had drawn them, the raising of Lazarus a short time earlier. But why are all these people in Jerusalem? Well, they are religious people who've come to a religious city for a religious festival. There were seven religious festivals, and it was mandatory for Jews who lived within reach of Jerusalem to be in the city for as many of them as possible. On this occasion, they were there for Passover, when the Jews marked their deliverance from captivity in Egypt. Do you remember how that happened? Um, It's in in the 10th and final plague, really. Um, The life of the firstborn in every home in Egypt was taken. And the only way the Israelites could escape was to sacrifice a lamb and paint the blood on their doorposts so that the angel would literally see the blood and pass over. Hence the term Passover. So Jesus has arrived really on the 10th of Nisan, the 10th day of the month in the Jewish calendar. That's the 6th of April in our calendar. Remember that date. We're going to come back to it in a moment. That's the day when Jewish families went to select the lambs that were to be sacrificed for Passover. The only equivalent I can think of is the week before Christmas when we go to choose our turkeys. But this has much more religious significance. On the very day when the Jews have come to select the lambs, they will sacrifice to remember their ancient deliverance. The very Lamb of God himself shows up presenting himself, so to speak, as the source of their ultimate deliverance. Passover was the high point of the Jewish history, the high point of their calendar every year. Every year they went to Jerusalem. Every year they went through the same rituals. Every year they recited, and I mean mundanely recited, the same prayers. And it had clearly become a bit stale for a huge number of these people. Their longing for something more drew them to the man who could raise people from the dead. He was a real breath of fresh air in this climate of stale, stagnant religion. In Mark 12, we read, the large crowd enjoyed listening to Jesus teach. That's the very next chapter. The large crowd enjoyed listening to Jesus teach. That reminds me of my four favorite words in the Bible, Luke 15, 2. This man welcomes sinners. Those are words the religious leaders used to condemn Jesus, to criticize him. But for you and me, those are the greatest words of hope. This man welcomes sinners. He didn't hang out with religious people. He hung out with ordinary people. They found him more appealing than their cold religion. Uh, General Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, used to say, I like my religion as I like my tea, hot. So what makes Jesus more appealing than religion? Well, religion emphasizes the outward. Jesus emphasizes the inward. The Jews had a million rituals to do with hand washing and everything else. The outward But Jesus says things like this, 
Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? He's always focused on the inward. Religion is about rules. Jesus is about release. Some people are obsessed with the words, thou shalt not. But Jesus doesn't say, you've got to keep all the rules before you come to him. He says, come just as you are and watch what I'll do in your life. Religion puts up barriers. Jesus tears them down. If we had been in Jerusalem that day, we would have been confined to certain courts. We wouldn't have got anywhere near the temple, never mind inside it. But when Jesus died, the curtain, the barrier to the most holy part of that temple was torn from top to bottom. And religion says, you must do. But Jesus says, I have already done. In Grow, I sometimes tell the story of C.S. Lewis attending a conference in London. They had been debating the difference between Christianity and every other faith for hours when he walked into the room and gave them a one-word answer. Grace. Every other religion is working its way up to its God. But our God came down to us. By this time next week, the world's media will have descended on Dublin to cover the papal visit. It's 39 years since Ireland had a papal visit. So to mark the occasion, Sky has made a short film about Ireland and religion. I've interviewed lots of people in the last few months. A champion Irish surfer who gave up on Catholicism but not on God. A youth worker in the Catholic Church who told me her young, her young people struggled with mass but were curious about Jesus. And a man called Peter with the most remarkable story. His mother spent 30 years of her life in a Magdalene laundry simply because she'd fallen pregnant before she was married. At the age of four and a half, he was fostered out to work as a farmhand. And his sister, yes, his mother became pregnant for a second time while confined to that laundry. You can work that out for yourself. She's still missing. Having told me his story, Peter said, God didn't do this to us. The church did. At my lowest moments, he said, I still prayed to God and found peace there. So don't presume that the results of referendums on marriage and abortion mean that Ireland is an entirely secular place now. It isn't. Ireland has fallen out of love with religion but it hasn't fallen out of love with Jesus. There is a deep spiritual hunger across this island. Now, please don't think I'm knocking the Catholic Church because I'm not. Protestant churches have done as much and perhaps more damage um, by focusing on the outward, imposing rules all the time, putting up barriers, getting so caught up in the minutiae of doctrine that we make ourselves irrelevant. But we've got an opportunity to change that. An opportunity to be part of this spiritual awakening that's going on in our generation. In this land of St. Patrick, a place of deep, meaningful, personal faith, I really do cry from the bottom of my heart those words we sang at the beginning. Spring up, oh well. I plead for God to come and open the old wells to do it again. And it will happen, you know, when we just give them Jesus. Because Jesus 
is more appealing than religion. And then secondly, Scripture is more reliable than opinion. Scripture is more reliable than opinion. Nearly everyone you meet has an opinion about Jesus. Some think he's a fictional character. Some think he was a good man. Some think he was a prophet of sorts. People have been thinking those things for two millennia. Do you remember back in Mark 8 uh, when uh, some of the disciples, when Jesus asked some of the disciples, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. You know, with hindsight, those were half-sensible suggestions. By this stage of his ministry, by Mark 11, some of them had decided he wasn't from God just because he didn't keep the Sabbath. Some had decided that he was demon-possessed or mad. Imagine saying those things about God himself. How many of those opinions turned out to be accurate in the end? None of them. That's how reliable people's opinions are. We're quoting C.S. Lewis a lot today. He explored three of those opinions in what he famously called the great trilemma and concluded that Jesus wasn't a liar and wasn't a lunatic, so he had to be the Lord. And that's what this event, which is so important, it features in all four Gospels, is all about. Confirming the identity of the man who is at the center of this massive crowd. Later in the same chapter, Jesus chases people from the temple for buying and selling there and then curses a fig tree. You see, the fig tree should have been bearing fruit, but it wasn't. The temple should have been a place of prayer, but it wasn't. From the beginning to the end of Mark 11, it is an indictment of false religion. And it's in this little book to point us to the alternative. His name is Jesus. But if we are going to exchange religion for a relationship with this man called Jesus, we've got to be absolutely certain about who he is. Mark's words alone will not be enough to convince us. One man's opinion will not be enough. Mark's got to find another way, and he does. You know the saying, the devil's in the detail. Well, on this occasion, the detail's in the donkey. He doesn't exist here by accident. You could preach a whole sermon on how the disciples were told to find a donkey, were caught stealing it, but were allowed to take it anyway. You could preach a whole sermon on how this donkey, which had never been ridden before, calmly sauntered into this crowd with Jesus on its back. Those things alone reveal him to be divine, to be God. But there is far richer treasure to be unearthed. Come with me to Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. How? Lowly and riding on a donkey. The words of the prophet Zechariah, 500 years before this event, he was telling his people, you already have a king. He's going to come to you one day, and when he does, you'll know him because he's going to be on a donkey. The donkey's here to teach us that God keeps his word. Jesus needed this donkey because he's revealing himself to be their king. When a king rode a donkey, he came in peace. When he rode a horse, he was at war. Here, Jesus comes in peace. In Revelation 19, he comes on a white horse in judgment 
to conclude the war with Satan. And if this fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy isn't enough to persuade us about the reliability of the Bible, then listen again to what the people sing. Hooray! God bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. God bless the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hooray for God in heaven above. It's a direct quote from a psalm of David. Psalm 118 verse 26. God bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. How could they not recognize this man before their eyes? Well, it's simple really. They thought too highly of their own opinions. I think about that. They estimate that there would have been around 2 million people in Jerusalem for the Passover back then. That's an enormous number. And each had their own opinion. But there's an estimated 8 billion people on planet Earth today. Can you imagine how many opinions there are out there? Um, well, we don't actually have to. Because most of us are posting them on social media. In the UK alone, 79% of people use Facebook, 79% use YouTube, 47% are on Twitter, 41% are on Instagram. We're now spending an average of, I wait for it, nine hours a day on social media. That's more time on social media each day than we spend in bed sleeping each night. I'm mandated by my job to tweet news, but I'm not mandated to post personal opinion on Facebook. But I find it very hard not to when other people are expressing theirs. Most of it is just harmless banter. But it is just opinion. Um, we're really on a C.S. Lewis rule today. He said, what you see and what you hear depends a great deal on where you are standing. We've become so polarized that we've lost the ability to stand where someone else is standing. Our own opinions have become more important to us than the truth. But Mark is not stating his view here, his opinion. He's stating a fact. Don't take my word for it, he says. Take Zechariah, the prophet's word for it. Take King David's word for it. Take God's word for it. When the earth appears to have fallen off its axle, and we're bombarded with opinions about Donald Trump and Brexit and everything else, whatever else comes across your screen every day, there's only one reliable source, Scripture. Now, can you imagine what would happen if we spent nine hours a day in the Word? Our lives would be transformed. This island would be transformed. The, the world would be transformed. Because Jesus is more appealing than religion. And scripture is more reliable than our opinions. And then thirdly, decision is more useful than debate. Decision is more useful than debate. Picture this scene for a moment. There are thousands upon thousands of people here. Hailing him king, giving him the red carpet treatment, throwing their coats on the ground for the donkey to walk on, staging an impromptu parade and, and waving their palm branch flags. But they're still debating who he is. Mark is really matter of fact about these people as he is about most things. But John gives us the detail. In John 12, we read about who exactly is in this crowd. We'll not take time to go right through that, but there are four categories of people. 
who are debating all that's going on. The disciples are there. The people who had witnessed the, the raising of Lazarus are there. The people who had heard about the raising of Lazarus are there. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders are there trying to figure out what they're going to do with Jesus. But come back to the end of the passage we read at the very beginning. But since it was late in the day, he went back to Bethany with his 12 disciples. Hang on a minute. How many people out of a potential 2 million? 12. By the time the sun goes down, that's the number of people who have decided to stick with Jesus. By the end of this same week, these people who were shouting, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, will be the people shouting, crucify him. They were too busy debating to make a, a vital decision. Why, why were so few of them prepared to make that decision? And I think there are two reasons. Some had begun to realize he wasn't the kind of king they wanted. Remember when he reached Jerusalem, he went into the temple and looked around. He would return there the next day uh, to condemn them for wheeling and dealing. But on this occasion, he was just kind of casing the joint but I suspect that was the moment when some of them twigged that he'd not come to liberate them politically. He wasn't there to condemn the Jews. To the, the Romans, I beg your pardon. He wasn't there to condemn the Romans. He was there to condemn the Jews for their false religion. What a lesson for us in Northern Ireland. Jesus didn't come to shake up the political system. He came to shake up the church. And that really forces us to ask ourselves a question. What kind of Jesus do we want? You see, some of us are looking for the therapist king. The Jesus who will just make us feel better, but not challenge us in any way. Some of us are looking for the Tesco, Argus, or little king. A Jesus where we can find all we need at the lowest cost to us. And some of us are looking for the panic room king. A Jesus who will in some way protect us and our family from injury or illness or harm. If we can learn anything from their mistake, it's this. The king we want isn't always the king we need. Jesus hadn't come to change the circumstances of their lives. He'd come to change the condition of their hearts. Which is so much more important to pay the price for their sin. How on earth did they fail to recognize their Messiah? He met the criteria. An ancestor of King David, he had walked on water, fed 5,000, healed the sick, cast out demons, raised the dead. How could they demand his crucifixion? Well, it's, it's obvious really. When Jesus doesn't give people what they want, people don't give Jesus what he seeks. A decision their life. Some had begun to realize he wasn't the king they wanted, and some, well, they were just too busy debating to decide. It's a bit like the Belevenses when we go on holiday and it's time to enter the pool. Ruth goes down the steps, taking a sharper intake of breath with each one. Sarah sort of glides gracefully onto the lilo. Well, she is a dancer, and then just slips into the pool. Uh, James and I are quite similar. We, we stand on the edge uh, debating whether or not our bodies can withhold the shock. 
The only difference is I stand for about two minutes. He takes about 15. And Josh, well, he's the most courageous. doesn't matter if it's 8 in the morning or 10 o'clock at night. He just bombs into the water. doesn't give it a second thought. Debate isn't a bad thing. God gave us minds for a reason. But eventually, you just have to bomb into the water. There are people who sit in church for years and years without ever making a decision, even in a non-traditional church like this one. Um, other people read books about Jesus, and then they read more books about Jesus. And uh, they could debate with you endlessly every controversial comma in the Old Testament. But they've never made a decision to follow Jesus. How long will you waver between two opinions, asks Elijah. Please don't make the mistake this morning of thinking that you can put that decision off because you can't. If you make the decision to go home without Jesus this morning, you haven't put the decision off. You've made the decision to go home without Jesus. And we really don't want you to do that. That's why the prayer team are here and always available. Throw off the sin that entangles, said the writer to the Hebrews. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured what? The cross the decision he asks us to make does not even come close to comparing to the decision that we asked him to make. There comes a time when you have to stop debating and just decide. Jesus is more appealing than religion. Scripture is more reliable than our opinions. And decision is more useful than endless debate. Jesus has preached a sermon without uttering a single word. Now, at the risk of me preaching heresy, I'm sure Phil will correct me afterwards if I'm wrong, I'm going to suggest that even the donkey might have got it. In preparing for this service, I have learned some fascinating things about donkeys. Donkeys can live up to 60 years old. Their long ears might look a bit weird, but they're there to keep the donkey cool and to enable it to hear for miles. And this is the most bizarre fact of all. You find this on the Times newspaper website, there are more people killed annually by donkeys than in plane crashes. Yes, I have no idea how they researched that or why anyone would ever need to know that, but there you are. So the Lord has supernaturally arranged for this donkey to be tied to a certain post. For the owner of the donkey to turn a blind eye when the disciples nicked it. And for this animal, which hasn't been broken, to just calmly saunter into this potential crowd of two million people without behaving like buckaroo. I can't help but conclude that this donkey knew he had his creator in the makeshift saddle on his back. How could any of us possibly conclude that the God who fulfills prophecy in that kind of detail can't deal with the fine detail of our broken lives? To the person who's struggling with the loss of their spouse or their parent or their child, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. To the, parent, to the person who's struggling with their mental health, desperate to find some meaning and purpose in the darkness, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. To the person who's searching for fulfillment everywhere, the workaholic, is hungry for promotion, hungry for more money, hungry for more things, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Christ really is enough.
Jesus doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what we need. He gives us himself. And he leaves no stone unturned to make sure we recognize him when he appears. Now, I've left the best bit to the last, partly because it involves maths again. Do you remember the date I gave you right at the beginning? Jesus arrived in Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. That's the 6th of April in our calendar. Now, come with me to Daniel chapter 9, verse 9. Know this and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. What on earth is Daniel talking about? Well, he's providing the most precise timetable for the coming of the Messiah. To put it as simply as possible, he's saying that from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem, there will be 483 years until the coming of the Messiah. Lots of people have studied that, including the rather brilliant Sir Robert Anderson, a former head of Scotland Yard's criminal investigation unit. He wrote a book on these verses entitled The Coming Prince, and he really did his homework. He trawled through Middle Eastern history and discovered that the command to rebuild Jerusalem was given by the Persian monarch Antaxerxes Longomanus. I think that's a fabulous name. On the 14th of March, 445 BC. So he started counting from that date. He didn't use our calendar, of course. He used the Jewish calendar. Remember, there are 360 days instead of 365. So he took 360, the number of days in the Jewish calendar, and he multiplied that by 483, the number of years Daniel had prophesied. And he got 173,880. That's the number of days he counted. I hope you're still with me. And he began to count. So he begins on the 14th of March, 445 BC, and he counts 173,880 days. Guess where it takes him? To the 10th of Nisan, to the 6th of April, 33 AD. Daniel had prophesied the coming of the Messiah to the very day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. If ever a donkey had a date with destiny, it was this donkey. This is no fairy tale. It's a God-chosen moment in time, backed up by 483 years of Middle Eastern history. Incredible, really, isn't it? If the band are still here, I'm going to invite them to come to close. I'm not sure if they are. It would be so easy for us to judge these people for their religious attitude, for allowing their own opinions to cloud their reasoning, for constantly debating the fulfillment of the prophecy that's going on before them but never making a decision. But if we did that, we would be no different to them. The spirit of religion can creep in so easily. Um, there's a danger we think we're immune from it because we're not part of a traditional denomination. But the spirit of religion can take hold anywhere when the practice, how we do things, becomes more important than the person in whose name we do them. That's why from the moment we meet and greet people at the door to the moment we serve them tea and toast, 
and everything else that goes on in between. We're not offering people Emmanuel Church. We're offering them Jesus because he's more appealing than religion. We're offering them the indisputable truth of the scripture because it's far more reliable than our stupid opinions. And we're offering them a king who invites them to make a decision because that's infinitely more useful than endless debate. Choose today who you're going to serve, says Joshua. And when the people say, we have chosen God, Joshua replies, no, I mean really choose. Really choose. There can be no half-measure decision. You can't really live with one foot in the kingdom and one foot outside of it. God calls us to respond with all of our lives. And you know, I really feel this is a message for the young people this morning. The more we give of ourselves to God, the more we receive of God in return. In the middle of the 18th century, a man called Noxang from the Garo tribe in India found Jesus. When the village chief demanded that he renounce his faith, Noxang declared, I have decided to follow Jesus. So they killed his children. When the chief repeated his demand, Noxang declared, Though none go with me, I still will follow. So they killed his wife. And when the chief made that demand for the third and final time, Noxang declared, The cross before me, the world behind me. Those were the final words he spoke. They did far more than inspire a worship song. Stunned by the courage of his commitment, his conviction, the village chief eventually found his way to Jesus too. So this morning as we reflect on the man on the donkey at the center of this massive crowd, I simply want to ask you, have you, have you found your way to Jesus? He really is everything you'll ever need. And he calls you to come and give him your life or perhaps come and give him more of your life. Give him everything because he'll never fail you. He'll never let you die. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that there is much more for us than dead religion. There's much more for us than a God who once was. That we meet this morning in the name of the God who still is and will forever be. Father, we thank you that we've something that's much more certain than our own opinions. And that is the truth of your word, sharper than a two-edged sword, never changing. Help us to build our lives on it. And Father, we thank you that we have an opportunity to decide. So give us the courage to do that. To say this morning, it's going to be Jesus. And not just some for Jesus, but all for Jesus. So that we can be part of the family who go from this place to witness this mighty spiritual awakening. Help us to do that. To your honour and glory. 
Amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. For more information about our church and all that we do, please visit our website at emmanuel-church.co.uk.